Potev. My name is Ross Azdorian, and this is Made of Armenians, an evolving collection of perspectives from the influential Armenians among us. And let's just get this out of the way. It's going to sound like I'm a Muppet while I talk because I'm still recovering from deviated septum surgery, but I didn't want to wait to put this conversation out. I got to be honest, I don't have many friends, I actually don't think I have any friends who are politicians, let alone lifelong politicians. So when I reached out to the mayor's office of Glendale, I didn't really know what to expect. But what I got was a really quick and deep friendship with the current mayor of Glendale, Artie, or Artishis Kasakian. Now, you must think, well, the mayor of Glendale is always Armenian, but that's not true. And I very quickly realized how much extra pressure that must come with. What I came to appreciate rather quickly about Artie was not only his commitment to the diverse people in his city, but that the curiosity for other people actually is rooted in the depth of knowledge and enjoyment that he has about our own history. It's those bits of knowledge and history that when you just talk with him, they come out, actually excites me to carry on these stories and do things like this show. Now, If I back up, I have to think about politics as a whole. And I think that in order to go into politics, you kind of have to be nudged in the direction to believe that you can make a change. So we start the conversation of this episode right there at that inflection point where a young Artie was faced with a choice. So 1997 was the year when we were told at the beginning of the school year that there was going to be an effort by the Turkish government to establish a chair of Ottoman Turkish studies at UCLA with a donation of $1.5 million to the university. The irony of the figure not being lost on us, and we immediately like tried to figure out what we could do, went and spoke to different Armenian groups and tried to find some guidance. I mean, we were young college kids. Up to that point, our biggest concern was What party are we going to organize next? And now we were faced with this serious dilemma of having this intrusion into our idyllic collegiate life and world with some serious political and global implications. We went and met with other student groups, Latino student groups, uh, Mecha, Greek, the Greek says in fraternities and sororities. We leafleted the entire campus, all to raise awareness about this publicly funded taxpayer-funded public institution entering into potentially this terrible agreement with a government with an atrocious human rights record. The answer we got most often was, well, it's too late to do anything now. This deal has already gone too far down the road. The money is necessary for the university. You're just a bunch of students. We'll have to worry about the next one. So finally, the day comes when the history department itself has to vote on whether they accept the chair or not. And professor, after like hours of deliberation, he's like, we did it. We were like, what? He's like, they voted it down. And we come to find out they voted it down by a vote of 18 to 17. So it was like a one vote difference. That was my turning point in terms of understanding that if you don't show up, if you're not there, if you don't put in the work, like don't expect the results. So when you look back, because now you've been in some sort of public service for 16 years. Yeah. How do you determine what is a cause worth putting time into? I think that it's a very, very good question. And it's really hard. I think each person has to make that decision for themselves. And you have to ask yourself, what are you willing to live with? 
I mean, everyone feels the pressures of being an Armenian in different ways, right? Here in the U.S., our lives may have certain comforts, but then there's other stresses on us. The struggle of being Armenian is far more existential. But we also, I mean, all of us around the globe, wherever we are, feel like we're endangered species. And so it's hard for me to tell anyone when they feel that. I know within me, it's a matter of how am I going to look back on this and feel about it? How will I internalize it and how will it shape me moving forward? I think what I have found getting to know you and just talking to you in this short time is that you are such a deep knowledge base of Armenian history, which the word is Karapar. Am I right? <laughs> Karapar, yeah, that's okay. the classical Armenian, yeah. And I think that, again, for someone like me learning along the way, and I would assume people who don't grow up in the diaspora, even though you also didn't grow up you know, here in Glendale, I think that that must be gratifying to know and to learn. But what part of the view of our history informs the way that you look at our future and the ways that you hope for the future of Armenia and Armenians? First of all, I believe all history is important. Being Armenian, it is such a rich tome of knowledge and experience that we have to uncover. Some of it very depressing at times because I'm not talking about the 1915 or 1895 massacres and genocide. We get fixated on just a couple of periods of Armenian history, but Armenian history is over 4,000 years old. And there's a lot over there to uncover and learn from. And, you know, once you dive into it, you just don't want to get out. It's like the water feels great. When we chatted previously, you had said that the Armenian language was somewhat created to make an accessible version of the Bible that's, am I remembering this correctly? Well, yeah. So not the Armenian language itself, but the Armenian alphabet, right? Mm. So the Bible is brought, and in Armenian, the Bible is referred to as the Astvaz Ashunch, the breath of God. So Christianity arrives in Armenia not long after the crucifixion of Christ. It's kind of perhaps looked at as an obscure faith until 301 AD when St. Gregory the Illuminator converts King Dertad. We're not the first Christians. That's kind of a misnomer. People are like, we're the first Christians. No, the people who hung out with Christ were the first Christians. First <laughs> Christians were in you know, Israel and, and Jerusalem and those areas in Rome. So when Armenia converts to Christianity as a state religion in 301, it's not until the 5th century, until 405, I believe that, or 451, that they developed the alphabet, Mesrop Mashtots. And the reason we come up with the alphabet is because, you know, we wanted to understand the breath of God, the word of God in Armenian. Today, we're talking about medicine books and cookbooks and like, you know, books on philosophy and astronomy. So that is something to be celebrated. In fact, one of the most holiest of holidays or important holidays in the church is Subtakmanshats, which is the celebration of the holy translators. And these are things that we should be aware of, right? And and reclaim and embrace our love of knowledge. And we don't do enough of it. I think that it's happening now. I mean, Armenia is becoming very advanced in technology and getting plugged into the global community, but we have to also kind of make it our own just as we did back then with the illuminated manuscripts. So jumping into my own edit here with my nasally voice, because we spent so much time talking here and it really is just endless knowledge when you sit down and talk with Artie. But I shifted the conversation a little bit because he's got this very unique exposure to a variety of Armenian communities. 
not only because he's the mayor, but he did grow up and spend some time in both Boston and Yerevan as a kid. So I asked him, let's just say there's a ton of us from different parts of the Armenian community at a backyard barbecue. I asked him, how would you differentiate the types of Armenians that were there? And I just loved what he said. What differentiates different Armenian communities is the food. Food, food, food. I've always said that if there was, you know, in the black American community, there's this comment about, you know, who's invited to the cookout and who's canceled from the cookout. I think Kanye is no longer invited to the cookout, (laughs) right? So I think if we had a kef, if we were to call the kef, like to the Armenian kef, like the the Beirutsis and anyone from any of the Arabic Middle Eastern countries would definitely bring the appetizers, the meze, 100%, right? The chicken kebab, the juje kebab, and the stews would have to be brought by the barskahais without doubt. And like the Hayastansis would have to man the grill because no one makes better chorobas than the Hayastansis. <laughs> it's just fact. So you have obviously done a really good job preserving our culture, our knowledge, you know, within your own body that's been passed down to this quest for knowledge and this curiosity from your parents. How are you approaching passing this on to your son? I am struggling with it every day because I wish I could do more, but... I think my family, I'm very fortunate to have a very supportive family and they understand why I do this. They are passionate about public service in their own way. My son's eight years old. He's not, she's more passionate about Pokemon than anything else, but (laughs) I hope we'll understand one day. And the way I try to pass it on to him. So Armin right now is learning about the seasons. He's learning about the life cycle of a butterfly in Armenian. He's learning about Martin Luther King in Armenian. He's learning all these things about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And he's learning all about American history in both languages. And that helps. It helps because he's getting the foundations and the basics of Armenian. And even though I wish we could speak more Armenian with each other, we at least have, he's gone more than he would have gone anywhere else. So that I'll kind of round it out on this. You not only have managed to work a full life successfully in public service to make real tangible change, both within your community and within other communities, starting from when you were at UCLA, you said, you know, we had to go to other communities for our cause. With all of your experience and everything you've learned, how do you think we successfully or how do you feel we can effectively involve other communities so that they can believe in us the way that we believe in us? I think we need to tell our story to as many people as we can. And as we tell our story and most importantly, listen to other people's stories, we will find those points of intersectionality. When I, we were talking to the Movimento Estudiante Chicano de Aslan Mecha group on campus, the leaders of which are still friends of mine, you find that there is this commonality of like people that are oppressed. Like I find myself identifying very closely with the plight of and and the struggles of indigenous peoples here in the Americas, as well as in other parts of the world, right? Or the black struggle, the Black Lives Matter movement, what happened with George Floyd and the oppression of blacks in the U.S. is something that we felt on our skin as well. And Fresno, Charles Gary, one of the most prominent defense attorneys in California history, was the defense attorney for the Black Panther Party leadership, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton. Charles Gary was born Garabid Garabidian in Fresno. 
And, you know, when he was hired to be the attorney for the Black Panthers, he got a lot of grief from the black community for not being a black attorney for black defendants, while also getting a lot of hate from white people for being a white attorney for these black militant activists, quote unquote. And his response was like, I knew what it was like to be black growing up as an Armenian in Fresno because I was called an N-word of the San Joaquin Valley. I was followed home and beaten and harassed for being different. And I could change my name and kind of, you know, enter into white society. But a black person can't change the color of their skin, their pigmentation. So how can I not be a advocate and a defender for this community? And so I think that we need to like learn and hear what other people are going through. And as Armenians, maybe that's our special superpower, right? That that empathy, that sense the identification with the underdog. You always want the little guy to succeed. You're rooting for David over Goliath. And I think that most Armenians can identify with, and I think most other groups can identify with as well, who are in similar predicaments. You know, I always thought I was a Red Sox fan because I was born in Boston. And, you know, at one point in my life, I thought, well, maybe it's because the Red Sox are always underdogs. Not so much anymore. Same with the Patriots. (laughs) Shout out to my friend, Berge Najarian, by the way, who works with Bill Belichick. But, you know, I grew up as a Patriots fan when the Patriots were the most miserable team in the NFL, like had lost two Super Bowls. I never imagined in my life we'd be like living the glory days. Right. But it was because they're an underdog. And as Armenians, you always want the little guy to win. Amazing. Well, that's all I've got. Mayor Ardashis <laughs> Kadak Kasachian. Oh, oh my goodness. I botched it at the goal line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Artie for being so open and letting me into his office. I cannot believe I messed up his name again at the end. I am le cringe. But hey, you know what? That's the way it goes. I'm learning, as you can very clearly tell. And if you're enjoying it, if you're gaining something from this, please tell somebody else. That's the best way that the show can grow. And also, you can send me a message if you've got some suggestions. I'm also on TikTok, absolutely getting grilled in the comments when I mess things up, like pronunciation. But that's the way it goes when you put yourself on the internet. So, my name is Ross Dorian again, and until next time, Padiegak. <laughs>